Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, April 2nd, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, back after a week's vacation. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Uh, we missed you. We missed you dearly. Uh, we we soldiered on without you, but uh, but it, w- it wasn't the same. Was it uh, associ- I, was it uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald? Hi, Abe. Not the same at all. Different podcast. Different podcast. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. I am the most delighted to have Noah back because uh, his technical skill set vastly surpasses mine. So I, I disagree. I, I listened <laughs> listened when I could, and it sounded nice to me. And you guys created a lot of controversies while I was away. So you know, maybe I'm just a you know. Maybe I'm the stick in the spokes. Well, no, it was your it was your controversy. I don't want to get into it, but it was part of your controversy that you've been worried about basically since the beginning of the of the daily podcast, which was this question of whether or not we were going to end up as some kind of bifurcated society of the vaccinated and unvaccinated, as now represented by this <coughs> vaccine passport idea, the only the only viable or the only current vaccine passport that I'm aware of, I now have a copy of, that is the New York State Excelsior vaccine passport, which I I, uh, I will be interested to tell people who don't know, it expires at the end of this month. So I registered it uh, uh, on the date that I was uh, allowed to, which was the 30th of March and it expires on the 30th of April and I have to I guess I will have to re-up again why that is the case well we just don't know how long you'll be immune John we don't know how long you have antibodies so it's just prudent okay so um Pfizer announced yesterday the day before yesterday that they are their current research says that the vaccine uh is viable for six months at a minimum, but that they are only saying six months right now. Um, We want to get to the infrastructure bill and everything that's related to that. But I I, I think we need to, uh, we need to make reference to the fact that um, the public health bureaucracy is now actually consciously, it seems to me, trying to drive everybody insane consciously, Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, told Rachel Maddow on, I think, Monday that based on their research, uh, the vaccinations impede the spread of the virus or you know, interfere as vaccines are supposed to, not only with the fact that you will get sick and will, will keep you from getting sick, but will also uh, stop the transmission of the virus. And then yesterday, the CDC, the organization run by Wachelle Walensky, uh, issued a statement saying that that wasn't necessarily true. So why did this happen? Well, <clears throat> I'm now going to cite a friend of mine, uh, a, a doctor who was involved in uh sort of coronavirus task forcing at a hospital uh, during last year and all this, that uh, uh, she said, virology Twitter went insane when Rochelle Walensky said that the virus, uh, that the vaccine uh, basically means you're not going to transmit the virus. Because of course, it's not 100% because nothing is 100%. Nothing in science is 100%. 
And so she was yelled at apparently on these Twitter feeds that none of us see because we're not virologists. And a decision was made, who knows where and by whom and under what circumstances to walk back what she said precisely at a time when she and everybody else in the virology and public health community are saying, everybody's got to get vaccinated as fast as possible because the variants are coming, the variants are more contagious. And so we have to get everybody to vaccinate. Vaccine hesitancy is bad and this is all terrible. She comes out and says, get vaccinated because it's not only gonna, it's not only gonna heal you, but it is going to make sure that you can't give the disease to anybody else. And then they say, no, no, we need to do more research. So I call this, I don't, it's not gaslighting. I don't know what the word is for what this is, but it's like when, you know, uh, you are going to eat something and you say to somebody, is this, you know, is this milk good? Uh, or, you know, is this, this thing that's in the fridge, can I have it? And then someone says, sure, you can have it. And then you're, you take the fork and you dig it in and you take a bite and you have a bite. And then you take a second and then they go, wait, no, 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 no. Wait, wait a second. I think it's, maybe it's three days. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Like that. And then you're like, you're poised with your fork over the, and you don't, right? I mean, and then this happens again and again, everything in the fridge, everything in the house, everything is like, I, I, I just, I, I can't vouch for it. There, I mean, These people uh, are terrible. I These are I, terrible, terrible. This is this is one of the worst failures of public leadership in my lifetime, without question. I don't. I don't follow virology Twitter. It sounds like a dangerously self-selected population. Um, but I do follow. Well, they're all virologists, Twitter. Noah. They're virologists. I do follow regular Twitter, and I can imagine what the reaction is. Is that there really is no distinction, John? Very serious, more serious than us. People would say there's no distinction between what Rochelle Walensky said on Wednesday, that there's no data to suggest that you either get or transmit this disease. And her subsequent statement that we don't know whether you could, because those two things are completely congruent if you're a, an obnoxious stoicist to the point where you are just paralyzed by your own, by the knowledge paradox, which is entirely possible that these people are just deferential to the knowledge paradox. But that just means it's a judgment call to be left to political officials, which is what we've been saying forever. Well, let's put it this way. When you go to a hospital and you need, they have to put you under, right? Because you're, you're having like a minor procedure or what, or you're having a major procedure and they have to give you this speech about the risk of anesthesia. They're required to both for, you know, honest communication reasons and liability reasons and whatever. And they say, look, in everything there is risk. And you, if you go under, there's a risk that blah, 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 with anesthesia. But at our hospital, I do think it's fair for us to tell you that at our hospital, it has been 20 years since there was any complication resulting from anesthesia or something like that. Or in my entire professional career of many thousands of operations, there has never been an issue with anesthesia. However, I'm required by the Hippocratic Oath or whatever to tell you that there could be a risk of a reaction to anesthesia. Does that mean that you should tell someone that you don't know whether anesthesia is going to kill them or not? I mean, it, it, what you say is there's a 1% chance, so there's a 90 That That's all this is, is 
the overwhelming nine and a half out 9.9 out of 10 results suggest that it interferes with the transmission of the virus. She says it interferes with the transmission of the virus. And then somehow that is deemed to be recklessly irresponsible by her colleagues in the world of virology. Can I, can I add to that? Just something I was telling you guys, my, one of my, one of my kids, a teenager, we, I, I'm a dinosaur who still gets print um, newspapers delivered to our house every morning. So the New York times came, uh, he was looking at the front page and there's a chart, a COVID chart right on the front page. And it says nearly everyone lives in counties with high risk for COVID-19 exposure. So I generally don't, you know, I mean, I've obviously we talk about the virus in, in my household, but he said, well, isn't everyone at risk for exposure? It's a virus. That's how viruses work. Isn't the real risk hospitalization and death? And it was interesting that even, you know, even a teenager can look at some of the fear mongering in the headlines and say, wait a minute, where the goalposts have just moved. I thought we were supposed to be looking at hospitalization rates, death rates. Now it's just the risk of exposure. It's like, it's out there. I mean, it things that mindset is a real problem and, and both the public health officials and the mainstream media narrative about it are actively suppressing people's willingness to go get a vaccine to return to normal life to even discuss the option of when can we all take our masks off these are important questions we should be discussing people th th there's actually an effort to suppress that debate or that discussion the thing is as long as we are on the page of um uh, you know, well, if there is some risk, then then nothing is good and nothing can be said to be over or ending. As long as that's where we're at, this never ends. It never ends. There's no way out of that. That That is we a are, permanent situation. Right. And, and of course, this gets to one of the longest lived topics that divides the left from the right broadly understood, which is the question of a society and risk. And now the fact is that based on everything that we are learning about the vaccine so far, with the exception of these five or six horror stories, the guy whose skin peeled off his leg and the woman who got it again after she got it, one person in Queens who got it after she got it and all this, that, that we are with hundreds of thousands, millions of vaccines having been shot in arms, not only here, where 30 some odd, 45 million people or 50 million people have already gotten the first vaccination. Israel, a country where five and a half million people have been fully vaccinated. Tens of millions of people have gotten this thing and you can count on your hands the number of stories about horrible responses. That's like, that. that is as close to being no risk as possible, but it is not no risk because there is no such thing as no risk. You step out of your house, a brick could fall on you from a, from a, from a high height. You could be hit by lightning. You step, you cross at a crosswalk with the light and a car can smash into you anyway. There is no such thing as no risk. And for some reason, at this moment, the medical community, which knows about this better than anybody else on earth, because it is the entire science of medicine, has decided that it cannot stomach any risk. I'm, I made and it my professional responsibility yes. to not follow the news while I was away, but I did stumble across this interview that 
um, <clears throat> Washington Post and CNN medical analyst Liana Wen gave to Chris Hayes the other night. It was, it was this week at some point. And she's been everywhere over the course of this pandemic. So she's one of the pandemic celebrities. This is, you know, her moment to shine. And she definitely said the, oh, I'm sorry, it was Chris Cuomo. And she definitely said the, the quiet part out loud where she fretted about the reopening of states, not just because there could be, you know, more opportunities for transmission. Also that, and, and very, in very good faith. I think she genuinely believes what she's talking about here. But she said the quote, if everything is reopened, what's the carrot going to be? What's the incentive to get you vaccinated if real life is already available to you? So we kind of have to pare back society just as an inducement to get you vaccinated. That, um, that's not the province of public health, first of all. It's something very different. Second of all, it, it's not medical analysis whatsoever. It's, it's public policy and public health experts have shed a lot of their responsibility to be dispassionate scientists in this moment and have embraced this idea of a platonic ideal of this medical practitioner as somebody who's also sort of a, a vanguard of, of, of a healthy, wholesome society. So, so that is the public health side of the equation. Um, wrong though it is and, and um, you know, inappropriate as Noah says that, it's, that it is. The, the complementary element here is the, is the public that receives this message is in a place where because of the fragility and the, and the you know, disorientation of the pandemic, we have completely forgotten what acceptable risk is. So we are totally receptible, uh, totally receptive to this crazy new paradigm that is being issued by them. But I mean, the long-term consequences of this for people like Leanna Wen, granted she herself has benefited mightily in terms of reputation and probably income and all this from the pandemic, but uh, you create the conditions under which um, an, a shockingly successful uh, global experiment in uh, public health and vaccination, uh, you create a standard under which it cannot yet be considered a success or it cannot yet be considered uh, the sort of thing where you can make determinations on the basis of 50, 60 million people already having gotten a shot, meaning that the entire planet or many countries on the planet or whatever are, are a Petri dish for all of this, at least, you know, the immediate reaction, right? The immediate, you get a shot, and then what happens in the 12 to 24 hours after you get the shot? You know, what? how, how does your body react to it? What are they going to do the next time they need people to get, a you know, they need, what are they going to do when people come in because they do need that surgery and have to go under anesthetic? We've, we're having this public uh, information and education session about, medical science and risk and the messages that are being transmitted by the medical community are incredibly injurious to an to a to a public understanding of medical risk you can use this and say my god this is really look at where we are look at what we've done look at what it look at what happens understand that while there is no such thing as zero risk, there is such a thing as overwhelming odds of success and overwhelming odds of a return to normal life and all this. This is a moment of great optimism, of great enthusiasm and all of that. And they are 
not doing it. And that is very, very threatening to our public future because it, it it's an implicit cave to the forces of anti-science that have been growing pretty much since the mid nineties when we had all these science scares because the tort lobby was going absolutely ballistic. ALAR on apples was gonna give you cancer. And you know, and then of course the ultimate, which was Andrew Wakefield's made up data about how vaccines cause autism, which is, was really the sort of the, the, this, the moment whenever, when this all went nuclear. And all these people who have every reason to know that everything that is going on here is very dangerous are contributing to an atmosphere in which those ideas are made thinkable and possible and knowable. And I, I, it's very, I, to me, it's just very, very worrisome and very upsetting. Now, let's move on to this fact. This morning, 8.30 this morning, uh, the jobs report came out, 906,000 jobs created in the month of March. Unemployment rate down to 6%. Uh, the largest jobs report in, I don't know, I mean, I guess there was some point, there was a there was a bigger jobs report last year, but this is like a huge number, vaccinations, economy coming back to life and all of that. Meanwhile, uh, we're told that we need to spend uh, $3 trillion uh, more dollars to build back better because uh, if we don't, uh, uh, I don't know, America's going to uh, fall into the ocean. The, uh, the, the Biden infrastructure plan, a while close to a million people got, new, got jobs last month, and the economy is clearly on a glide path toward a roaring 2021 with massive job growth and massive economic growth. We are being told that there need to be, you know, huge tax increases and an enormous level of public spending uh, uh, that that we haven't seen since the 1960s, and by some calculations, since larger than the New Deal. I mean, so, while you slept, uh, Joe Biden's position has become the moderate position because four trillion is nice, but according to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, we should be going for ten trillion because. 10 trillion is a nice round number. That's basically the only thing I can I can think of. Um, it's very Trumpian insofar as it's big, nice, round. People are gonna love it. It's gonna be great, it's terrific. The biggest number you've ever heard of. What would that go to? I don't know. She just wants it to be 10 trillion. So Joe Biden now gets to say, well, you know, my crazy left flank wants this, but I, the, the most moderate of moderates have come to the middle position which is the biggest infrastructure bill in the history of the country. So uh, we find ourselves, I mean, this should not be an atmosphere in which the Biden proposal gets that much traction. Let's talk both politically and I just talked macroeconomically, right? Uh, huge job growth, all of that. Potential, inflationary potential here significant. We know that. People are worried about it, both because of the Fed's loose money policy and because roaring, you know, massive roaring economic growth of the sort that we're about to see always has inflation because there's too much money chasing too few goods. That is how inflation happens. Uh, so that's the macroeconomic threat of 
you know, uh, of, of, a, of an overheating economy that can overheat still more if the government starts borrowing massive amounts of money and shoves it into all of these places, public sector unions, uh, childcare. I don't know, we can go into some of that detail. Politically, I just want to remind everybody, Joe Biden won a very significant victory but that was a four and a half percent victory. He got 51 and a half percent of the vote, not 53, which is what Obama got, not 57 or 55, which is what George H.W. Bush got, not 62, which is what Lyndon Johnson got. Four and a half percent, 51 percent, right? The margin in the House is five seats. There is no Democratic margin in the Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris breaking the tie. The politics of this present moment do not speak to a gigantic political shift toward the great society that was that was prepared for in 1960, you know, uh, not I mean 1964 by Lyndon Johnson winning 61% of the vote in the 1964 election, and I think having more than 60 seats in the Senate, I can't remember, I mean, whatever, you know, these massive margins. So he was in a position where, and even there, getting some of this through was a was a very hard sell. Uh, Medicare, you know, uh, some aspects of, of, of the great society. Um, but you couldn't doubt, you couldn't deny that, you know, Johnson had this massive mandate. Biden doesn't have a mandate. And Mitch McConnell said this yesterday. He said, Biden is a very, very good person, but I just don't see where he has a mandate for something this size. So what are the practical consequences of the fact that they are trying to push through the largest growth in the government in 60 years on the basis of a very, very, very slender majority at the national level and not even a real majority in the House and Senate. Well, the polling Christine, indicates that it's all popular, though. Right. So that actually, that's polls I was gonna... are not votes. But the thing about the thing about the popularity is that it can it can be true. But the question is, especially with this infrastructure bill, uh, people like to see roads and bridges and tunnels all improved and built, et cetera, et cetera. But that is a very, that's just one small part of this bill. So it's a weird kind of gamble they're making with this infrastructure bill, right? On the one hand, you're giving people what they say they want and what the country clearly needs, particularly with the roads and bridges. And that's good, but they've padded on so much stuff. I mean, there are huge parts of this bill that if you try to figure out what it is, they just, it's too complicated because there are too many political payoffs going on with the money. And so they just call it other, but like the walking around money they're giving to unions and to other special interest groups in the democratic coalition is enormous. So if you balance that at the same time that they're, they're definitely playing to their constituents and saying, well, the only people who are going to pay for this are the rich. And we know the rich are terrible. So let's just make them pay. And we get new bridges and roads. But the problem is, that's never how it works. Do you remember all the shovel-ready green projects that, that the Obama administration embarked on, some of which turned out to be absolutely corrupt corporations making backroom deals with the government? This is This is how federal government at this level of spending often works. And I think you know, the initial enthusiasm, if this gets passed, is going to fade dramatically when we see how few of these infrastructure projects are 
basic infrastructure and how much are just political payoffs that that's it's 50 it, it's probably more than 50 50 but only a small portion of this bill is actually going to do what infrastructure as typically understood does yeah and that's without you know if you don't count their generous i mean or, or preposterous redefinition of infrastructure here you know they have things like care infrastructure research infrastructure everything the, is infrastructure yeah these are actual terms yeah for, i mean that, the, they've, you know, that they've put into this is very important because, of course, the term that is being used here is human infrastructure, which is a gigantic oxymoron. Infrastructure is, by definition, the opposite of human. It is investments in objects and things and, and, and things that humans use in order to make them more efficient and their lives more efficient and work better. There is no such thing as human infrastructure uh, because we are not objects and we are not machines and we are not made of cement and concrete and steel and, you know, and fiber optic cables. That is not what we are. Child care is not infrastructure. It is the opposite of infrastructure. It is a hand-knit person-to-person thing where a baby has a diaper changed by another person. That is childcare. It is not a massive public works project. And so it's a fantastic bit. I, I wouldn't exactly say it's Orwellian. I mean, the right does some of this too. Human capital, which is a term that people on the right love to use is itself kind of almost exactly the same, right? Because capital is the opposite of human. I mean, capital is, is, uh, is investment resources, money, things that you can put into something. Human capital is more like, you know, human activity is human capital and so whatever. But so the, the using these sorts of things to humanize things that are by definition not human at all is a is a is a habit of mind of the you know of the uh semantically the semantic infiltrators who want to use language to get their you know their politics make their politics more more popular i just looked this up by the way so uh 1964 uh when johnson uh won the election and then built the great society pretty much in 1965 and onward the Democrats had 68 seats in the Senate after the election in 1964, having had 66 before it. 68 seats. What do they have now? 50. 5-0. 50 seats. What I mean, we are talking about, uh, and you know, after uh, 32 and 36, the same was true of or certainly after 32, some comparable circumstance was the same in the Senate for, for Democrats, you know, at the beginning of the New Deal. 50 seats, five-seat margin in the House. Um, now, maybe you can make the case that uh, the pandemic has upended all understanding of America, you know, we've gone, gone through an unprecedented crisis, but he already spent that money. He already got that money. First, it was it was two trillion now, and then there was nine hundred million in December before before he was became president. But you know, after after he won the election, um, now we're going to spend another three trillion. 
with a divided country in which I just also want to remind you that the that the the fascistic monster who pushed through the horrible tax cut of 2017 got 47% of the vote. He didn't get 40% of the vote. Jimmy Carter got 40% of the vote in 1980 when he was denied a second term. George W. George H.W. Bush got 38% of the vote in 1992 when he was denied a second term. Donald Trump got 47% of the vote. Republicans got 15 seats, won 15 seats in the House back from Democrats in November, and it's a 50-50 Senate. The politics of this don't make any sense. This is not a moment at which the Democrats and liberals have a runaway new consensus or mandate for this kind of thing. And I'm right. Yeah, go ahead. No, I just want to add that one of the things that the, you know, one of the, of the categories in this bill, they have a whole section on like infrastructure at home, which again, speaking to your earlier point, John, but you know, they're giving money to public schools, early learning centers and community colleges, a lot of union money is baked into that too. You know, housing, home and community-based care for the elderly and disabled. I mean, this is not, that. that's a social services bill. That's not an infrastructure bill. So that's, and again, like that is the, the three out of the four categories that they're calling infrastructure aren't typical infrastructure. People need to look really closely at these bills. Manchin, I think has been good at already signaling that a lot of this stuff is not gonna, not gonna fly. Um, the Biden administration's messaging hasn't changed though. There's no evidence that they are listening at all in the same way that they're continuing to argue absolute flat out lies about what Georgia election you know, legislation has done. I mean, there, there's, the messaging has been really interesting. And forget the bipartisanship. The, the party that was so keen on stopping the spread of misinformation, disinformation and lying is doing plenty of that with very little pushback from the mainstream media. Before, you know, that's important. Before we get into that, though, I mean, the, just on the prospects for a political backlash, the logic behind all this deficit spending, extraordinary deficit spending, is that interest rates are ridiculously low right now, right? So you got to just take advantage yeah. of that. Government should just borrow, 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 and you know, worry about spending, paying it back later. Now we know public borrowing crowds out private borrowing. Um, and we know that public borrowing to the scale that we have now will necessitate rate hikes soon, not like not like years from now, soon, and pretty soon you're gonna have to, it's gonna be more expensive for you to borrow money. It's gonna be harder for you to buy a house. It's already very difficult for you to buy a house just because material costs are absurd and the inventory is extremely low, but it's hard for you already now to buy a car in part because nobody was making cars for a year. And there was a strike that happened a year ago and just the inventory is really low. Inventory is low all over the place. And there's a lot of demand, ton of demand, not a lot of inventory, hard to borrow. It doesn't take an economist to see where you hit a wall sooner rather than later. Look, Donald Trump himself said in 2017, 2018, the logic of infrastructure spending during his tenure was, was very much the same. And it remains one of the great mysteries why he didn't lean into it more, which was, yeah, we're at this position where interest rates are at 2%, 1%. It's like free money. You can buy, you can take this money and, and borrow it over 30 years. The federal government can. And then you can do all this stuff and it can have all these signs on it saying Donald Trump built your bridge, Donald Trump built your road, Donald Trump did this, Donald Trump did that. And for some reason, they couldn't get it together to pull it off. And Noah's right that on the one hand, the logic of, of extremely low interest rates says 
there's never been a better time for government to 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 take this on uh, because the because the the cost of the 30 year cost of of getting that money and then paying it back over time will never be lower um but the real world consequences of that are coming up really 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 fast and it's not just that it's going to be more expensive to borrow money that's part of an inflationary cycle also it is that let's say as we say the cost of goods the cost of uh, uh materials for houses um is now very expensive so if you want to build a house it's now it cost twice as much to build a new house right now as it did two years ago right uh when the federal government spends 150 billion dollars over the next year on bridges tunnels roads what are they buying they're buying cement they're buying steel they're buying wood they're buying all this stuff it's not just that it's going to be hard to borrow it is that actual goods actual materials that make our economy there's going to be massive competition between public sector spending and private sector spending that is going to increase private sector spending. And what does it mean when private sector has to spend more on stuff just to keep going? It means less employment than might otherwise be the case. It means, you know, dramatically reduced purchasing power for just general goods. And that anyway, the seventies. Yeah. But look, it's not the seventies uh yet and um and it, it's not only not the 70s yet but uh much of what happened the reagan blowback against a lot of this was the result of the fact that they did all this stuff uh you know guns and butter as it was called right it used to be you had to choose between guns and butter and johnson said no i'm not going to choose i'm going to have i'm going to fight a war in vietnam and i'm going to create this massive uh, federal government infrastructure. And then we had 15 years of disastrous public sector spending uh, that didn't actually do much good uh, for the economy or for America that a lot of people could see. And there was a real world experiment with that money and that, and, and that Reagan was the blowback to, which is, you know what? We tried it your way and look where we are now. We've had 15 years of it. Look where we are now. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You are not better off than you were four years ago. Now, I just want to read one thing, though, because this is important. This is uh, Mark Halpern's newsletter, uh, which is called The Wide World of News. Um, And he basically is saying Biden is in the catbird seat. So he points out this, the dominant media home field advantage enjoyed by this administration pervades every issue, topic, debate, and news cycle. Uh, Suffice to say this White House starts with a built-in edge on almost every issue and the comms team knows how to play the press. Joe Biden is comparatively well-liked and harder to demonize than his predecessors. The quiet, close, unprecedented coordination among the White House and the Democratic congressional leadership continues apace. The dominant media will continue to frame the attempt to pass $4 trillion more in spending as a heroic Biden quest. The press's conventional wisdom, this will be an easier, even heavier lift than the pandemic relief bill, is true, but recall that the biggest speed bump in getting that previous law done was an 18-hour delay for some Joe Manchin kabuki. Until the likely final passage, every new cycle will be filled with framing that starkly benefits the Democrats and hampers the Republicans. 
There are literally hundreds of examples already, but here's one highly representative one. The New York Times leads with this headline, Biden seeks to use infrastructure plan to address racial inequities. Good luck messaging against that team, Red. Another New York Times story on just how very bipartisan the White House is being quotes Republican powerhouses, Jerry Dyer and John Giles. Anyone ever heard of Jerry Dyer and John Giles? In favor of a big spending package as if they are more significant than say Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. So uh, because the media are in Biden's pocket right now, as he, I think, lays out uh, systematically, and because the Democrats are very coordinated, um, and, and, and because Biden himself is a creature of Washington, unlike Obama, and therefore has a greater feel for how to play the Senate and the House and the Democratic majorities than I think Obama did, even though Obama did perfectly well, um, how does the blowback happen? That, that's my question. I mean, is, does the blowback happen? Because I'm looking at this and I'm saying, you know, this is an unbelievable opportunity for Republicans to get their sea legs after Trump, right? Part of the, and what I mean by that is not, you could like Trump, you could not like Trump, I, I don't care. But Trump pushed uh, weird issues to the fore and uh, didn't debate major issues that put them in the background. We talked about Colin Kaepernick for six months and I, I don't know what, whatever else, right? This is just classic Republican conservative issue, uh, an issue folder, right? It's um, government, ridiculous de democratic government spending, big government coming back, roaring, crowding out private investment, taxing you, they say the taxes are only going to go on the rich, but you know there's never enough money for that, blah, blah, blah. It is like, here, let me, the Biden people are saying here, let me give you back all of your issues so that you can bash us over the head with them for two years. That, 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 that depends, um, that, that relies on the idea that the, for the Republican voter today, those are still the issues. That's the question, exactly. Do, do they but care about spending they be? anymore? Because I don't know. Because I, I don't know that Trump cared about spending. It's not. It's. It's just not. It's not the. You know. It's not the sexy. It, it's got to be culture war or bust. If well, it's right, not that, yeah. yeah. Then if it's not that, who's getting exercised? Aside well, and from Biden, us? Biden has made a point repeatedly of talking about how much Republican voters love what he's doing, right? He's always saying, oh, the polls show. Even the Republican voters think I'm doing an amazing thing by spending all, you know, spending all your money. Um, so I think Abe's absolutely right. The things that are, and the media plays into that dynamic by saying, well, the country is trying to recover and we're creating jobs and Biden's doing all this amazing stuff, which they keep mentioning the word soul. I've pointed that out a few times to you guys in our group chat. Like they're constantly talking about how he's restoring the soul of the nation. Meanwhile, the only thing Republicans care about is stopping you know, transgender athletes. Like that's all they care about is if that's a fringy thing that isn't serious uh, to the rest of the world and look at these crazies out there. So there is a marginalizing that's been done both by the mainstream media and the Democratic Party that has been effective in, in for, for moderate, you know, independent voters. But as serious as that issue is, <clears throat> and it is serious, and as serious as the Dr. Seuss issue is, and it is serious, that's what they spent their time talking about with the it, at the expense of the details of the last stimulus proposal. It was only us who was talking about the union payouts, the conspiracy in, in Washington, D.C. to keep schools closed. That sort of stuff just didn't energize the base. And Republican 
politicians knew it and didn't lean hard into it. And they let this stuff fly. And those are serious issues. That's, that's what a serious party does, is they educate the public about the long-term consequences of public policy, which is what this is. And just because it doesn't generate a lot of traction on cable news means they've abdicated that role. They don't have any interest in, in, in taking it on. It does, I, I don't know how that returns because it's a demand issue. Their voters just don't want to hear about you know, interest rates. They don't want to hear about inflation. They don't want to hear about deficit spending. They definitely don't want to hear about Keynesian economics, in part because Donald Trump fled the field on these issues. But nobody seems really all that interested in taking up the, the baton because it's really boring. I mean, can you even imagine a Jack Kemp figure getting any traction today on the right with his issue set? I, I don't know. We assume that the voters aren't interested. How do we know that? I mean, look, somebody yesterday pointed out that if you aggregate the number of daily uh, watchers of Fox, MSNBC, and CNN, right, the average daily audience of, of, these, of these networks, you get about seven and a half million people in a nation of 330 million. We take a lot of wisdom from both the dominant media and the more engaged political media about what people care about. I don't know that we know what people care about. I'm not saying that they care about deficits, right? Deficits were a very big issue for a very long time. And they had a very simple, it was a very simple sort of like, I have to keep my checkbook in balance, so should Washington, right? That, that was a very easy sell. And then basically people stopped keeping their checkbook in balance and started living on deficit spending of their own with credit cards and all kinds of stuff way more. And so a lot of that like went out the, you know, but when I was in the 1970s, when I was growing up in the 1980s, one of the easiest things that any moderate middle of the road politician to very right-wing politician could say is, this is ridiculous. Like every household has to have a, you know, has to, has to have a, a balanced budget. So why does government get to escape from it? Okay, so so maybe that's out the way, uh, you know, maybe that's off the, you know, uh, whatever, the public agenda. But uh, hundreds of billions of dollars to public sector unions that currently employ 4% of American workers, direct federal subventions for public sector workers, not just in the federal government, but state governments, a direct payoff to them in a bill that is supposed to be about building roads. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not sure what the transmit, how you transmit these messages. In 2009, the Tea Party movement came out of nowhere literally came out of nowhere. I know people have spent 10 years saying, oh, it was funded by this. There was, oh, secret dark money and the co the Cokes and this and that. And the other thing, and mostly it seemed to have arisen from one TV appearance by one guy on CNBC saying it's not fair that they should be suspending your mortgage. They should be suspending some people's mortgage payments when 92% of people are paying their mortgage every month. Uh, you know, that's how we had a tea party. That's that was that was Santelli. That we, he was on CNBC, and boom, right? It was so commonsensical. So I don't know what the common sense is. I do know this, which is that if we're creating a million jobs a month, not just now, but you know, over the course of the next couple of months, the argument that Biden will be making 
that we are in desperate need of massive federal spending to get the country back on its feet, is there's going to be a problem. It doesn't make rational sense in the middle of an economic boom to say what we need is massive federal spending, otherwise our country is going to go down the, down the tubes. Um, Biden's success in the polls, in my, it seems to me, is understandable in this way. People were terrified and worried and didn't, couldn't make sense out of what was going on with the coronavirus. He gets elected and he says, we're going to spend a lot of money to get the coronavirus under control. And, we're, and, and so uh, due to various things of happenstance and good fortune and all of that, the vaccines come along, they're ready to go. Um, uh, they, the distribution system isn't clear. It gets a little better. Uh, you know, he makes this ridiculous promise of that he's going to get all these shots in arms that we're already going to get in arms and all of that. And so people are still in the, we need to get out of the coronavirus crisis. So he spends a trillion nine, right? But well, I was going to say that I think he's counting on in a very, uh, I mean, it's a fairly condescending way to think of the American people, but never, never underestimate uh, politicians' willingness and ability to do that. I think he's counting on two things. One, kind of political, general political exhaustion that a lot of Americans feel post-Trump. It's like, oh, I don't think about anything anymore. We just, we put that guy in, they're going to do their thing. I'm, I'm out for, you know, I got a year off now. I don't have to think about how Trump's going to destroy us with fascism or whatever. And they've stopped watching the cable news shows that, that relied on that. They, you know, you see it. You actually can see data that shows that, that they're withdrawing from a lot of these debates. Fine. But the other thing is that they, he's assuming that a lot of people are going to give his administration credit when those jobs come roaring back, when the economy starts booming. And he's going to argue that. He's going to say, this is happening because we spent so much money and because the government took over this sector to this extent. And people but, will believe that. No, I don't know if they will. Because... It happened now. It happened today on April second. Nine hundred thousand jobs, the right? Details. There isn't going to be, there isn't going to be a bill by May. If everything goes on this way, there'll be another million jobs in May. So he's got to go to the Senate, and to, you know he's got to go to the House and Senate. Granted, so Democrats are like in lockstep, and it's all great, and it's really fantastic, and all of that because they're all together, as Mark Halpern describes. What's the argument for $3 trillion or $4 trillion in more federal spending when the economy is booming and jobs are being created at an un unbelievable clip? And it's about the soul of the nation. That's what it's about. It's okay. the transformative power of that spending, I think, is the message. They, they, they've been signaling that all along. It's but actually not would, just practical. No, but why would you have to transform the nation at that point? The nation is, the nation is back on its feet. It's no, I agree back. with you. I'm just saying no, no. rhetorically, they're going to make a no, pretty think, powerful yeah, that's, case. That's a really, that's a, an interesting point is that we don't, none of us here think that the infrastructure as built, as it is structured now is going to pass, right? None of us. So they're essentially arguing that we're not going to have the economic recovery we want in the absence of this bill, even as it's ongoing. And it's not going to happen as it's structured. So we're going to continue to have this economic recovery in the absence of this pristine infrastructure bill. So they're undermining their own argument for their own basis that, you know, thank us for the economic recovery because it's happening in, their, in the absence of their desired proposals. Exactly, so think about it this way. Go back to 2009. Obama gets, a tri gets two and a half trillion dollars of spending in 14 months from 2009 to early 2010. 
because we are in a gigantic pit and it's, and he gets it. And by November, he loses 63 seats in the house and only doesn't lose the Senate because Republicans nominate four psychotics, uh, you know, in Delaware and in Indiana, in, uh, in Nevada and in Missouri. Right. And so uh, those, those uh, elections got localized and they didn't, and they didn't win, but they would have won the Senate had things been, uh, had, the, had there been more rational candidates in those seats. But the economy was in a sewer. The economy was a disaster. There was a very, it was a very hard, even, even the healthcare argument had something to do with how, because everybody was suffering so much, we needed to make sure that there was national healthcare because what the hell was gonna happen to everybody in the wake of the terrible great recession? He's going to be making this argument in the midst of a gigantic economic recovery. It just, it doesn't, the, the messaging is contradictory. He's going to want to say happy days are here again, because who doesn't, who wouldn't? But it's not contradictory if you, if you frame it as I've seen hints of them doing already as, you know, look, we got this recovery coming thanks to all of our COVID relief money that we spent. And now we have to tr use this opportunity. That's the build back better part, transform it. So we got to spend more money, not because if we don't, we'll just fall back into a pit, but because we're such amazing Americans that we can do this, right? We can, we can transform, we can all drive electric cars instead of using those terrible gas guzzles. We can do all these things because we're amazing. Look, we're getting out of the trough. So I don't think it's contradictory. I also think, remember, what stuck with people who decided they didn't like Obamacare wasn't any of the details of, of the policy. It was the fact that the website didn't work when everybody tried to log on and that they were told you're gonna get penalized if you don't. So there was this horrible stick element to that policy that people remembered and thought that's not fair. And when they, when after it being touted as the savior of all you know, healthcare problems, the basic website didn't function. Those are the two things that stuck in people's minds. And I think if Republicans could get their act together, they could find stuff like that in this right. infrastructure bill. Well, that's very important. You mentioned the electric cars. We should talk about, uh, I've, I've got to go to the app, but let's talk about the electric cars for a minute. So they're going to spend $150 billion on electric cars. Someone's going to be purchasing cars by the federal government, which is, a, again, fantastic. That's really great. So basically, you're going to privilege the automobile industry by buying cars at a time when, as Noah says, like car prices already going up because there's a shortage, right? So fine. So you're going to privilege electric cars. You're going to build charging stations. You're going to do all this and do all that. Who buys electric cars? You think working class people buy electric cars? There's going to be subsidies for electric cars. So they go down from $80,000 to $40,000. No, no person who needs a subsidy to buy a car is gonna buy an electric car. That's a luxury good. You are subsidizing a classic luxury good out of some you know, misguided understanding that look, electric cars may be the wave of the future until they can be brought down in price. They are not going to replace the cars that, are, that run on gasoline. And yeah, the minute it's sort of like fracking, you know, the minute that electric cars uh, are profitable, there will be 10 billion entrepreneurs who will, who will, you know, on their front lawns, put up a charging station and you'll come by and you'll pay them a quarter to use their charging station for five seconds so you can get your car another 20 miles, right? I mean, we don't need federal subventions for this. 
it's it, it right it doesn't make sense so there are there are going to be a billion of these things in the bill the question is what is the transmission point for the stories that are going to come out that are going to create the resistance and that's what i don't know because that's where the republic this is a test of the republican party and the conservative movement's viability are they have they were they so corrupted by the last four years that all they really care about is whether or not you know uh, uh, Brad Raffensperger is punished for his disloyalty, or do they actually want to stop the rise of the second New Deal uh, and the you know massive inflation and the and the empowerment of big government and and that's what we need to watch out for. The other thing that we need to watch out for is our backs, because let's face it, our backs, you don't want a bad back. Everyone's been sitting around for a year now and, uh, you know, lumbar's bad and you're not getting enough exercise probably and all of that. So I want to talk to you about the X chair. I've been talking to you about it all week. This chair, they sent me fantastic desk chair with patented dynamic variable lumbar support, helps my lower back. And with their new XHMT technology, you can get heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. It goes right to your core. It increases blood flow. It increases muscle recovery. It helps you grow your energy. These are perks that make working from your desk a joy with four different massage modes, fast warming heat technology for therapy, I now look forward to spending hours sitting in my chair instead of dreading it. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs, and it's not an electric car you have to subsidize. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 x chair X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. Then you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS, X-W-H-E-E-L-S, for free X-Wheel blade casters. That's xchaircommentary.com. Um. So as I recall, we said last year, in the absence of Trump, uh, the Democratic Party and the liberal media would have to create controversial uh, figures on the right or empower or inflate controversial figures on the right to serve as reminders of how awful and monstrous and horrible Republicans were and they could come from anywhere and be anybody, right? And we have, we have our new one, it's Matt Gates, Congressman from Florida, uh, currently enmeshed in a very confusing sex scandal. Because what it started, it was he's, you know, maybe sex trafficking a sex trafficking 17-year-old. And now it's he gave people, he he did something with Apple Pay and 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 slept with women. So well, using uh, campaign uh, funds. He used campaign funds to pay people, which okay, is Okay, I missed is, I, yeah. I missed the campaign funds part, but it's also like, okay, so he he and he showed naked pictures of women on the floor of the house to his uh, colleagues and they they were naked following. hula hooping women. You've got to get the hula okay, hoop in there. Naked that's okay. what makes so, it weird. Okay. okay. <laughs> Now, I despise Matt Gates. I think he is everything that is wrong with American politics, writ large, small, and medium. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm happy for him to be destroyed if uh, he deserves to be destroyed. Um, the, 
but the story's weird because there is this bizarre detail about how he's being extorted, but apparently he's being extorted because his father is very rich and these guys in Florida wanted his father to pony up $25 million to pay ransom to get Robert Levinson out of Iran, whom we were told is dead. This is the American who has, you know, who disappeared into an Iranian prison 12 years ago. And we were told two years ago is dead. And they wanted to figure out some way to get money to pay, to ransom him. And there, and they went to Matt Gates's father, who's apparently very rich and said, you know, give us the money to ransom Robert Levinson or we're gonna expose your son's sexual peccadillos or something like that. So somehow you get a feeling that there's something here that's true because how on where on earth would this come from robert levinson in iran ransom money like you couldn't make matt gates couldn't even matt gates couldn't make that up so i don't know what okay go ahead i just have to say like for context you ask where does this come from the florida panhandle and i say this as someone who loves you know i'm from florida i will i actually have family in the panhandle so i'm not you know trying to snobbily say there it's terrible but there's some crazy stuff that happens in the florida panhandle and actually he strikes me as much more within the range of normal if you see it from that context and let's recall actually that the florida background is important because this was a guy who not that long ago was throwing his support to jeb bush and then he, he, he opportunistically embraced Trump and he seems to have also embraced the Trump persona, the Trump approach, the whole, the whole shebang. Okay, so, um, so we're talking about this and now we're gonna be talking about it. The story just keeps shifting to, so now Matt Gates is like a, is a, is a disgusting uh, creep, you know, who like read Neil Strauss's The Game and is showing naked pictures of his girlfriends and all that. What, what exactly that has to do with a sex scandal involving minors and the violation of the Mann Act? It's these, these things are not comparable. As I say, I have no truck with him, but whatever. And I also noticed that this is going on when what happened on Tuesday, the New York Times reported that Andrew Cuomo used staff to write his book for which he personally got $4 million in clear violation of New York state law on the use of public officials, public money, public time for private enrichment. Um, and of course, the continuing scandal of his brother, the CNN course, getting special treatment from New York state health officials, particularly in testing when, as I recall, no one in New York state could get a COVID test. Um, and now we're not talking about that. I mean, a lot of us are talking about that, but you know, how convenient that the actual scandal involving the governor of the um, third largest state or the fourth largest state in the United States and the hero of the of the democratic pandemic um, somehow now takes a back seat to this backbencher moron blithering idiot jerk idiot ass from Florida who is a human embarrassment who wanted to quit who announced before all this happened that he wanted to quit the house in order to have a show on Newsmax and that's more important than Andrew Cuomo I do love the irony that Chris Cuomo turns out to have been the first Excelsior pass holder, evidently, right? Like he got access to all kinds of stuff that nobody else could get. Um, no, I agree with that. And the, and the look, Matt Matt Gates in some ways is the much more extreme version of the kind of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez politician style that's new. These are people who are actually more like 
cable news hosts or Instagram influencers who happen to hold a seat in Congress. Like it's, that's not really, their power doesn't come from their position. It comes from their profile. And he's played that to a T. He wore gas mask on the floor of the, of the house. I mean, he does all these, he's a stunt politician. And unfortunately, I mean, those exist on the left and the right. We've, we've focused a lot more on the ones on the right. I'll point out the other stunt politician on the right, Marjorie Taylor Greene, spent instead of, you know, yesterday discussing the infrastructure bill, was posting videos of herself doing CrossFit pull-ups and stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's performative politics that has nothing to do with the serious issues. Like but people love it. Yeah, the TikTok. People love it. They love it. Do they? I mean, who who loves it? That's what I don't. I'm I'm sure people love it. I mean, people it's love it, and then, and then and then people are horrified. Then you know, it's like it. It's that weird thing where half the people love it. And my daughter is sending me, you know, is sending me clips of it because she's like, what the hell is she doing? My daughter who's like 16 is like, who does a pull-up this way? I mean, she's like doing this pull-up in this bizarre backwards fashion. It's a CrossFit pull-up. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't know though. though that, that weight could have been a promotional weight. I have no, I, I don't, I don't have, I don't have any idea. I don't know who, lo- I do want to read one thing before we go though. Cause I get a daily email called the daily Trump report. It's like something I was put on. Okay, so we're talking about Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the people who control our, you know, who are who are sort of dominate the Republican conversation, right? Or the conservative conversation. DailyTrumpReport.com comes from Wentworth, South Dakota. I have no idea who it is. I was added to this list. I just want to read you their top stories today because this is what the question comes down to, which is is the Republican Party going to take up the challenge posed by Biden, which is like a giant softball being lobbed right at them that they can hell over the fence or are they going to go into Meshuggah, you know, into, into crazy town land and, and screw this up. Top stories on dailytrumpreport.com. Here's why the Freemasons are a demonic and evil organization. Oh. Timothy Dixon says, Joe Biden knows God has numbered his days. Yes, the Nike Satan shoes are real. Mike Lindell's new social media platform, Frank, will be able to hold over 1 billion users. Biden's dog pooped on the White House floor and video shows Biden almost falling down the stairs again. Connect the dots, John. Connect the dots. (laughs) I'm just saying that like, 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 look, this is this is very serious business. We're talking about, you know, a, a massive, unprecedented increase in the size of the federal government. And as I say, deep, profound political opportunity for the right to get its sea legs after the disorienting experience of uh, 2015 to 2020. And then we got this, we got Marjorie Taylor Greene doing pull-ups and we've got the Freemasons are evil. Mike Lindell is gonna have a billion users and Biden's dog pooped on the White House floor. I mean, that that letter is almost quaint though. I'm just old enough to remember a time when that was the sort of unedited feedback you got from crazy people in the mail. Like they put a stamp on it. They would, they'd put a piece together magazine clippings and mail it to you. And the, these ramblings would be the unedited thoughts of madmen who would otherwise not get, a, get a, a microphone or a platform to spout this sort of crazy stuff. And all those gatekeepers are gone. So the only feedback mechanisms that people have now are these platforms. And those platforms cater to crazy people. So, you know, the, the crazy person who's piecing together the magazine hostage letter that you used to get in the mail in 1996 now runs the show and you have to pay attention to him. Uh, 
Yes. <laughs> but you okay, don't wait, have But to vacation did not mellow Noah. I think we now shame. <laughs> this is a good thing. <laughs> um, however, look, it's like, like, no, like you said, you know, the culture war is real. And I just want to complete, I want to, I want to finish the podcast. I sent you guys this yesterday. It's a book review in the New York Times, New York Times book review. Uh, most important publication for you know the world of books uh, in the United States and possibly the world. A review by someone named Betsy Bonner of a book called Girlhood Essays by Melissa Phoebos. Um, so here is how this begins. Nearly a decade ago, Melissa Phoebos reflected on her decision to publish her debut memoir, Whip Smart, under her own name and not a pseudonym. Quote, it didn't stop people from thinking of me as a former sex worker who also happened to write a book about it instead of a writer who happened to tell the story of her own experience in sex work, unquote. Nobody disrespects Phoebos anymore. Her 2017 autobiographical collection abandoned me about a toxic love affair. Her birth father and the sea captain who raised her was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and on many best books of the year lists. The former professional dominatrix now teaches nonfiction at Iowa. Phoebus's ambitious new collection, Girlhood, comprises eight essays about growing up in a female body that reached sexual development at the age of 11. It was a race that I had won without trying, she said, and to win it was the greatest loss of all. The book is a feminist testament to survival, years of dehumanizing sex with boys and men, harassment by women, being stalked, drug addiction, and what she describes as a growing certainty about the ways in which I have collaborated in the mistreatment of my own body. The story she tells is not just her own. Phoebus interviewed many other women about their sex lives and incorporated these testimonies into a far-reaching narrative. Um, so my point is, these people are all crazy also. They're all crazy. We had the thing this earlier this week with the CNN story that said, nobody knows what gender anybody is at birth. This right, piece as written a statement by 20, of fact. Yeah, as a yeah, statement, as a statement of, of fact. fact. Um, we talked about the transgender athletes thing where this idea somehow is that conservatives have, have conservatives are making transgenderism and athletics an issue. Conservatives are making this an issue. Uh, talk about gaslighting. Uh, so like, John, I, I don't want, yeah. Given this, you still think yes. that the Biden administration needs a, a sort of logical cover story to, to advance the, 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 the selling of these bills? Uh, I think that there is a there is a civil war going on in this country between madness and not madness, and that the, this is the ultimate fight. There are crazy people on the left and crazy people on the right, and their extremism, their misunderstanding of human nature, their attachment to conspiracy theory and, a, and, 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 uh, and sort of uh, the worst kind of characterizations of each other. Uh, this is the fight of our time. This is where it transcends, you know, some practical politics. You know how uh, around 9-11 uh, and the war on terror began, you know, people would say, look, they've been at war with us. We're just, we're just joining the, the fight. Yeah. That's, that's what we have yet to come to that moment. <laughs> they're, they're at war Fair with enough. us. <laughs> And we're not yet at war with them. Noah, go back on vacation. What did you come back for? Why did you come back? What, 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 run, who run. wants this? Run. Run, go back to the beach. Well, 
All I have to say, John, is that you live in New York State where your beneficent governor has legalized marijuana, and I think it's time for you to join the party because I don't know how else you're going to get through this. I don't know. Um, that, yes, we, uh, but when is your governor going to legalize marijuana? Well, we did in a referendum last year. My state, oh, yeah. my state has been an, unable to implement this, and it's been a very hilarious saga, actually, because every interest group is trying to get their, you know, into the trough and they can't figure out how to accommodate all the anti-discrimination groups in the process of legalizing that because it's, there's, you know, there's, there's the civil rights groups are suing the state for some reason because they're not a part of the, not a sufficiently represented on this committee, what have you. So this referendum passed and there's just, they haven't figured out how, they've figured out how to expunge old convictions which is, you know, a, a social justice issue. And that's, you know, nice. But they haven't figured out how to actually honor the terms of the referendum because of diversity consultants, basically. You know who's in the cannabis industry, by the way? You know who's joined the cannabis industry? John Boehner, the former uh, yes. Speaker of the House, uh, who has a pretty astounding uh, uh, excerpt from his uh, memoir, which I guess is going to be published Tuesday, in Politico this morning, uh, which I commend to everybody uh, because uh, you basically never read anything quite like this from a former politician. It's everything you want a former politician to do in terms of, uh, you know, candor and vulgarity. Uh, and um, it's uh, it's kind of jaw dropping. Uh, and uh, of course, Merlot and camels, the, baby. <laughs> yeah, Merlot camels and apparently now cannabis. So uh from 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 speaker of the house to a uh, pot dealer in um i don't know was it six years yes yeah, that's years. the american story john truly it's a beautiful it's a beautiful american story that uh uh you know grow back better i guess is what we uh <laughs> with purple lamps <laughs> on your windowsill anyway welcome back noah foolish decision <laughs> to return but you know, we need you. So we're happy to have you. Everybody have a great weekend. Uh, if you celebrate Easter, have a great Easter for um, Christine and Noah and Abe. I'm John Podhoritz. Merch at commentarymagazine.com. Merch.commentarymagazine.com for that for that new mug, the t-shirts, the sweatshirt, the, the, um, the tote bag. Merch.commentarymagazine.com and keep the candle burning.